you have a Bible, please open to 2 Samuel chapter 22. We're going out of order uh, at the end here of 2 Samuel, but that's okay because the author went out of order. And so next week we'll be looking at David's mighty men and all of those people who helped make him great. And then we'll go into um, the, the closing and the final judgment on David in that last episode that reminds us that there is still a greater son to come. Today what we're going to be looking at is Psalm, or I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 22, which is just another version of Psalm 18. So Psalm 18 and, and the song here are very, very, very similar. And we're going to unpack it and look at, at what it means to be faithful to the faithful, our faithful God so that we might live the good life. So before we begin, let us pray together. Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to come here and to hear your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us to um, understand not only ourselves better, but you better, that you would open your word to us now, that you would give us wisdom and understanding and insight, that you would illuminate our minds, that we might, Lord, draw closer to you, as close to you as you are to us. We thank you for this opportunity as your people to gather together, and we pray, Lord, that you would continue to bless us, that you would continue to make uh, your will known to us, and that you would continue to fill our mouths with words of praise. We pray all this in the name of your Son, and amen. Amen. Now, I'm going to do something that I should have done quite a while ago, and that is use a timer. (laughs) You're welcome. Now, chapters 21 through 24 are the epilogue of the books of Samuel, consisting of six episodes taken out of chronological order, The epilogue is a summary of both David's life and the two books together. We remember, of course, that uh, the only reason there are two books is because they couldn't fit the whole thing on one scroll, and so they divided it into two. So when I talk about the end of the books of Samuel, I'm referring back to what we learned at the start of this series. 1 and 2 Samuel is just the book of Samuel. And here is the conclusion of not only David's life as king, but of the story about how he came to be king. Now, the epilogue hinges on two works of poetry, a version of Psalm 18, and then a poem about the sun king, the ideal king of Israel. And and so this week and next week, that's what we're going to be looking at, is the poetry at the center of this epilogue. Before we get back into some historical narrative and, and look at some details about David's life, what we have here, right, it's David, of course, who wrote the Psalms, David the poet, David the singer. And so, at the of course, the heart of the The epilogue here are two poems that he wrote. So this whole section is taken out of chronological order, as we can tell from verse 1 of chapter 22. It says, And David spoke to the Lord the word of this song, the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And so clearly at at this point in the story, Saul has been dead since the end of um, book 1. So this is obviously taken out of chronological order. Now, the song, as it appears here, is a response to Yahweh after Yahweh delivered David from his enemies. And we see this again and again and again in Scripture. When God does something for man, man responds in song. That's the purpose of music. Music is supposed to be expressive, and it's supposed to be heightened and beautiful, and it's supposed to be something that we use regularly in response to God and what he does in our lives. Now, the, the books of Samuel are framed by this understanding. Hannah responded to God in song after God opened her womb in the beginning of 1 Samuel. And both songs have, uh, share a number of themes and images. Okay, Horns, as we're going to see, is going to refer to both mountain ranges, those rocks that Hannah and David sing about. But typologically, horns and mountain ranges and rocks are places of covenant faithfulness. Eden and Sinai, the Mount of Olives and Zion. This is seen in Psalm 124 where it says, um, I look to the hills where my help comes from. And it, it's, it works on two levels. They're singing that song as they go up to Zion and they see the hills. But it's also a typological reference to the hills throughout scripture on which God met man and, was, and made covenants with him. And so throughout the, both Hannah's song and David's song, when they talk about horns, they talk about mountains, they talk about rocks, they're referring to, to physical things, but they're also referring typologically to those places and times when God faithfully pursued man and made covenants with them and then followed through on the, 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 
the covenants that he did and the promises that he made. So both Hannah and David, seeing of the Lord's intervention to save his people and his anointed, and they both use this term, anointed, and, and they both, in both their songs, describe how Yahweh uses these horns, which also could be understood as the horns of a ram or a bull. So this is how these psalms work. The, the, there's a lot of meaning in these words. Horns refer to mountains, okay, Matterhorn. And, and they also refer to the horns of a ram or a bull. And so God uses his horns in order to protect his anointed. So he uses the covenants, he uses his might in order to protect the anointed. And both Hannah and David sing about this. Hannah finishes her song with uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah is prophesying that the Lord would anoint a man whose horns for war are powerful and strong, and Yahweh will protect him with his powerful horns. And then David, a powerful warrior, right? We see Hannah's song fulfilled. He is mighty in war. His horns are strong. He sings in 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty-one. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. So we see within the books of Samuel that there was this hope for a great and mighty warrior, the anointed of the Lord, who would come in their midst. And now at the ends of the books, we see that that person is in fact David. With with all of his sin, with all of his fall, with all of his struggle, he is the promised son. He is the anointed of the Lord. He is the one through whom... God is going to work and move to save mightily a people for himself. Now, the two songs form an inclusio to the books of Samuel. At the beginning, Hannah sings to Yahweh in response to his unmerited favor, praising his ways and declaring his promises to bring an anointed one. David stands at the end of the books, a mighty warrior and the anointed of the Lord, singing to Yahweh in response to his unmerited favor. Do you catch a theme here? Right, So the, if you imagine like bookends, you have Hannah at the start and David at the end, and they're both singing about the goodness and might of the Lord. And, and, and there, it's an echo back and forth. She's singing about the anointed of the Lord. He's singing about the anointed of the Lord. And, and in the, within this framework, we understand that God is the God who is not silent, who's not distant, who's not unconcerned about what happens to his people. And he is a God who is present, who is active, and who is fulfilling those things that he has promised us. Salvation and hope and restoration and healing, all of those things that he has promised us, we see here between these two songs, he is actively pursuing on our behalf. Now, David's closing psalm is a chiasm, beginning and ending with praise of God's protection. That's what the right, chiasms are, a literary structure where the parallel elements correspond. So you have A, B, C, B, A, and the B parts are similar, and the A parts are similar. And you use chiasms, it's helpful structure, to figure out what, the, what a, a text is all about. And so we see there, there's, you know, and the books that I read, it's like you, they're chiasm junkies, um, it's like once you discover a hammer, you think everything's a nail when you're a little kid. Uh, Bible scholars, once they realize there's such things as chiasms, there's like chiasms within chiasms within chiasms. And I purposely kind of avoid it because it's really, uh, it's a shtick that it is overused in my opinion. But here we are, and I'm bringing it up, okay? So within First and Second Samuel, which is itself a chiasm, you have a song that's structured as a chiasm, and, and, and it's structured that way so we can really figure out what the, the whole thing is about. There are two passages about God's self-revelation uh, and sandwiching the central theme, which is God's covenant faithfulness. That's what this song is all about. So you have David singing about God as a protector. That's how he starts and ends. Then you have uh, two B's that match each other, and, and that is David singing about God's self-revelation. And then in the center is, is this description of the God that he serves and what he is like and what he does on David's behalf. And it is beautiful, and it is a little frightening. And so that's what we're going to be looking at these, these various structures throughout. Now, God's covenant faithfulness to his people, his covenant faithfulness to us, makes us holy, and it makes us mighty. We cannot be holy on our own, and we cannot be mighty on our own. His love for us is efficacious. 
This is what we read about Jesus as the, as the husband and the church as the bride. His love for her is efficacious. God's love for us does something to us. It's not just an emotion. In 2 Samuel 22, David's response psalm presents the central theme of the Torah itself. Responding faithfully to the Lord's unmerited faithfulness to us results in life and blessing. This is what Deuteronomy is about. This is what Moses is trying to make clear to us in the, in, in the five books that he wrote. God is faithful to you, so be faithful to him. And if you are, you will find life and blessing. That is what Moses says over and over and over. Not you can earn this. It's given to you. And so be faithful to the one who gave it to you, and you will find that it truly is life and blessing. That's what, that's what David wants us to understand in Psalm 18, verse 19, David sings, He rescued me because he delighted in me. So the love of, a love of God for David is the reason he's saving David. He is not saving David because David is awesome. David is awesome because God saved him. And now we've seen enough of David. Is David awesome all by himself? No. Throughout the story, all the things that he does that are remarkable, all the things that we remember him for, are, are, happen to him because God loves him. Because God delights in him. And, and, and it's true for you and me. The, the only reason there is anything good about us at all is because God loves us. That's it. Right? I, I can sit down with you and we can talk. Uh, we can look through your life. We can have a conversation. And, and, and what we find out about everyone is what's awesome about them is what God has done in them and through them. And we trace everything back to that. The Apostle John wrote... In 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Ours is a responsive love. For whatever reason that defies all human logic, God chose us because he delights in us. So his love even precedes his choosing. And then now what, what, what can we do but love him back? What could we do but respond? What could we do but when beckoned come? The expressive love of man results from the expressive love of God. Hannah and David lifted their voices in adoration and proclamation of the Lord's wondrous beauty and covenant faithfulness. And this is how all Christians should live. Right? You should look at your life. You should see what he is doing, what he has done, his consistency, his unmerited favor. And what you should do then is lift your voice in song. That is what Hannah did, and that is what David does, and that's why it's here for us. It's, this is teaching us how to live the Christian life. And that was the point of this whole series, right? <laughs> Going all back, why did we do, now we're on the 73rd uh, sermon, I believe. Why are we doing all this? Because the, the books of Samuel teach us about the Christian life. They teach us what it means to fight on behalf of the Lord God, to fight on behalf of Yahweh, how to fight, and, and what we're fighting, and it shows us why we're doing it. It's because we were chosen by God because he delighted in us. That's who we are. That's the culture with which we go out and fight. Now, our praise of God begins always with who he is. Just like the Lord's Prayer, right, starts with an, um, a declaration of who and what God is. David's song uh, begins with a declaration of who he is and what he does. If you look in chapter 22, I'll read now verse 2 and 3. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, and whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my re re refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. So who is God to David? He is a place of safety. That, that's important right out of the gate. How does he imagine, when he thinks of his God, when he thinks of Yahweh, he thinks of a place of safety, a place of security. Using language full of metaphors, David's psalm begins with eight praise-filled descriptions of God. The Lord is my rock, he is my fortress, my deliverer, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. Now what you see here is that the, the, there's, um, these images are triads. They, they, they build on one another. Um, the first two triads begin with the word rock. But the rock becomes a rock of refuge. And then in the second triad, uh, it becomes a mountain. And so to David, what started as a rock gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it's a mountain upon which he stands. 
So God is a place of safety, but he's not just a place of safety. He's a place that grows and grows. And, and David, through his relationship, feels safer and safer and safer. And I think that we can all attest to this. Do you feel safer now in God's hands than you did five years ago? Why? Because he proves constantly how faithful he is and how good he is and how much he delights in us and loves us. And what happens is, is right, you imagine God is this place of safety and you're standing on a boulder. But then over, as the years go, the boulder becomes bigger and bigger and bigger until you feel like you're standing on a mountain. And that's what David is talking about because it was his experience. Now, the extensive use of first-person personal pronouns is significant. For David, the Lord is a very personal place of safety. He doesn't say he's a rock. He says he's my rock. He doesn't say he's a fortress. He says he's my fortress. And, and this is one of the most remarkable things in the whole song. How dare David lay claim to Yahweh in this fashion? Who do you think you are, David, to say that he's your God? Now, as, as believers, have you ever... I just recently got this. How dare you lay claim to this God that you believe in in such a fashion as if he cares about you, as if he's fighting for you. And I was like, yeah, uh-huh, I do. Yep. <laughs> That's what he does. He's my God. He's my rock. He's my refuge. He's my salvation. And what God doesn't want, he doesn't want you to go around just talking about what he is in the abstract. God is a, is a fortress for somebody. You know, he sure seems to be protecting people. He wants you to lay claim of him because he's laid claim to you, right? And the fact that he has laid claim to you is the basis by which you lay claim to him. And that's what we're going to see throughout this song. Because, right, it's an efficacious love. Because God has loved David, David loves God. Because God has laid claim on David, David lays claim on God. Now, Yahweh's faithfulness to David was security, it was safety, it was solace, it was personal, it was present, and he possessed it. It was something he owned. David dwelt in the Lord, so the Lord was near at hand in David's troubles. First Samuel chapter 18, verses 14 to 16. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And if, and if the Lord comes and, and, and dwells with you, if he comes and lays claim on you, what else can you do but lay claim to him? In Philippians chapter 4, verse 5 to 7, Paul says, Let your equanimity be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will billet in your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now think of that word billet. You guys heard that word very often? It's what, a mil- it's what the military does. It billets. When a military comes and, and, right, and the army marches out, they don't just make camp. Right? They don't just set up tents. They build it somewhere. That's the word in Greek. So the, the, this, this security, this love, this safety comes and, and, and makes, a, makes a fortress in our heart. And that is where right, God's love acts as, as that kind of security. How, how, how safe do you feel? Um, you know, we, we do this kind of thing in real life. A couple years ago, there was an airplane that took off from SeaTac. Um, some poor, sad fella stole the airplane. And airplanes are such now, apparently, you don't even know how to, know how to fly them. And this baggage claim guy takes off in this giant Boeing plane, and, and it, was, it was something that he was doing out of desperation. Now, it's a very sad story, but there's an element of that story that I heard that made me feel unbelievably safe. And that was that they scrambled the jets from Portland. Now, if you're thinking what I'm thinking, Portland doesn't seem nearby. It takes me three hours to get to well, two hours to get to Portland, depending on if my family's in the car. <laughs> so I thought, scrambled the jets from, like, we don't have jets closer than that? No, and it, the jets were scrambled from Portland and got here in eight seconds, or some, something like that. It was like 13 seconds, something unbelievable, because they went supersonic, and bada-bada-boom, they're here before the guy actually had even turned the plane. And, and, and that kind of thing, knowing that those planes, F-16s, are nearby and are able to get up here that quickly, um, you guys will have to check my math. It was some shocking amount of time, something that I, w- I had a hard time believing, even though I understand how airplanes work. Right? The fact that we would have F-16s that close makes me feel quite secure. I'm like, come on, China, what are you going to do? <laughs> okay, but, but what we learn from Paul, what we learn from David, is that the Lord is, cl- right, he, he doesn't keep the jets in Portland. They build it in our heart. His peace, his grace, his goodness, 
his, his solace, his love, he himself billets in our hearts. Right? And so when, when we fall into troubles, he's that close. You don't have to scramble him from a city in another state. He's right here with us. Now, next, David gives an example of what this ever-present help of God looks like. And that's what uh, verses 4 through 7 are. It says, I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. So that's how close God is. He opens his mouth and cries out verbally, and God hears him. He's that close. Now, the imagery here is quite remarkable. In verses 5 through 6, it's particularly interesting. David is encompassed by waves and torrents, and he cries out to the Lord. Now, verse 5, David refers to the torrents of destruction, which actually should be translated as streams of Belial. That's actually what it is in Hebrew. And this is why I love Logos, Bible software. You're like, bada-bing, bada-boom. It says something completely different than what I thought. Because we've heard this word Belial, right? The worthless sons. David is being drowned by worthless sons. And we've seen throughout the whole story, how often has he been assailed by worthless sons? Sheba was a worthless son in 2 Samuel 20. Nabal was a worthless son in 2 Samuel 25. David's own disgruntled soldiers were, were called um, sons of Belial in 1 Samuel 30. And so the waves, as we come to understand them, are not actual water. He's, he's using a metaphor to describe the, his enemies. His enemies are all around him. These sons of worthlessness, these sons of Satan, are assailing him from every side, and he feels like he's being overcome, like you would if you're floating in the open sea. Now, David's enemies are also described as Shehol, the place of the dead. Now, David's life was threatened by Saul. It was threatened by Absalom, and other enemies were constantly threatening him with death. While David dwells in the Lord, his enemies dwell in the kingdom of death. This, this is just, you see the metaphor is building. There are sons of Belial that are assailing him, and their dwelling place is the place of Hades, the place of death, Shehol. The reference to Shehol also fits with the imagery of the sea, which is sometimes compared to the realm of the dead. In Jonah, chapter 2, uh, uh, he prays to God, he cries out to God, Jonah, and it sounds an awful lot like this psalm. And when I did that sermon series years and years ago, if you go and you look at what Jonah prays, every verse is a verse from a psalm. So when, when Jonah is praying to God to thank him for saving him, his entire prayer is made up of verses from the psalms. And so sometimes when you're reading it, if you ever think, you know, this sounds an awful lot like Psalm 18. It is, partially. Okay? And, and, and this is what Jonah said. He said, Then Judah, I'm sorry, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Shehol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Jonah was cast into the seas, the deep, the belly of Shehol, the kingdom of the dead, and he was overcome by those waves. And, and we know that that actually happened. And then he was saved by the whale. The whale wasn't the judgment. The whale was the salvation. And David feels like Jonah did, bobbing up and down in, in the ocean, because sons of Belial are overcoming him. Those from the kingdom of death are overcoming him. Now, all of this um, is very strange to us. But in the Old Testament, it's very often where this, the nations who are unbelievers are compared to the oceans, hostile oceans, hostile seas. Water imagery frequently describes Israel's en enemies. Israel is often pictured as the land sitting in the midst of the sea, while the nations are the raging sea beating against the land to overwhelm it. Isaiah chapter 17. Ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations, they rock like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters. But he will rebuke them. They will flee from far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. Now, that, that kind of imagery is used all the time. The nations are like the oceans. And so this is, typologically, this is how Israel, they were sort of like hobbits. They were the people who feared the water. Uh, Israel is not known for, for great seafarers. And the reason was that they, they felt that the waters were very hostile towards them because this imagery was used all the time. And, and there's this separation of land and water in Genesis. And so there's a separation between the peoples, Israel. And so we're getting deep into the typological weeds here. 
But this imagery is used all the time. This is why in the Gospel of Mark, it, Jesus has these stories, these miracle stories that we don't really always understand because we don't understand this context. So in, in the Gospel of Mark, he did several things. He quieted a storm, right? And, and the way Mark does it is he would quiet a storm, and then the next scene he would cast out demons, and, and he would sandwich these kinds of stories together to make a, a broader point. So Israel fears the seas. David fears the seas. He cried out to God, and God saved him. And Jesus comes along and fulfills all of this typology by himself, right? His people are terrified of the sea, and he rises up and he quiets the sea with his voice, and, and, and the walking on water now takes on a new meaning. He's treading upon the seas like he's going to tread upon the serpent. He's walking across the oceans. He's submitting the, the water to his need because that is what he's going to do to the nations. And again, this is deep typological stuff, but it's important for us to understand this. Jesus commands the nations. Je- Jesus treads upon the nations. Jesus is just, just like what David describes him here. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. Right? Jesus was in heaven, and he knew what, was, what had happened to us. It's just like in Exodus. right? The people are crying out. Israel's crying out. And it says, David, God saw and he knew. Because when he's billeted with our hearts, when he is at hand, when he is as near as what David is describing, he knows what's happening to us. He's aware of it. And, and you may feel like you're bobbing up and down. And you would even take a whale to come and save you. You, you may feel de- in desperation. You may feel like you're being assailed within and without by constant struggles and strife and unbelief. We feel like this, don't we? Overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. Overwhelmed by the people in our lives. And, and, and when you cry out to God, God hears you because he is at hand. He, he, he's not... <laughs> He sits on a throne, don't get me wrong, in heaven, but he doesn't have to scramble the jets from Portland. He is present with you in your circumstances. He's bobbing there in the waves with you. And that's what David goes on to describe, is not just that he hears, but that he is a God who acts on our behalf. So now, verses 8 through 20, this is where the sections get a little longer, but again, you're welcome. We're going to go through them a little faster now. Verse 8, then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning, and he routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare. At the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostril, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. David describes the coming of Yahweh in quite startling terms. But it's not unlike how God is described in other portions of scripture. The Lord appears in cloud and fire and smoke, bringing thunder and earthquake and lightning, which is associated with glory theophanies in the book of Exodus, say, or in the sacrificial system. In the sacrificial system, there's flame and fire, right? There's, there's, there's burning judgment that consumes the offering. And, and, and when Aaron's sons were doing what they shouldn't have done, fire came out and, and consumed them. But during the Exodus, when he was delivering his people from Egypt, what happened? Right? He, he was a pillar of cloud and fire. There was thunderings. There was lightnings. There was terrifying things from heavens. When, when, when God arises from his throne, okay, and he descends to defend his people, it is more terrifying than a whole squadron of F-16s flying up from Portland. And, and I talked about this before. It is impressive. If, if, if you ever see it, I mean, when you see like a four or five F-16s flying by. It is an impressive thing to see. Um, we, were, we were at a tank display. There were three tanks that drove by us when we were sitting there. It was, I was a little frightened by these fire-breathing monsters so close to me. It, it is nothing. 
compared to God when he is roused on behalf of his people and descends from the highest heavens. And that's what David is describing here. In verse 11, it says he rode on a cherub, which refers to the cherubim that formed the Lord's throne in the tabernacle. If you recall, the tabernacle where God's throne was, there were angels there, and he sat upon them. And so when he just, this isn't as metaphorical as we think. When he rides with his people, when he's like, let's ride or die, guys, he's sitting upon a throne in which cherubs are holding him up. Also in Ezekiel chapter 1, it refers to God on a glory chariot thing made of angels. And I'm not going to try to describe it to you because I can't. (laughs) But it's terrifying, flaming, churning storm that comes down out of the heavens and, it, and it's like a firing chariot of angels. Like just imagine what that could possibly look like. And that is what David is describing about this God who cares about him. I cried and what happened? He roused himself and he came down out of heaven in this terrifying way, destroyed the enemies and saved me from the waves. He lifted me up and put me in a broad and safe place. He took him from the, from the waves and put him on dry ground. He took him from a place where he felt like he was drowning and put him in a broad place where nothing was near him that was going to harm him. In verse 19, he, he shifts from this poetic imagery of sea to, to the, the imagery of a meadow. He's drawing upon his own pastoral background because he was a shepherd. In, in this verse, verse 19... He describes the Lord as being his support. In Hebrew, it says his staff. And that is the crook that shepherds use. Right? And so God is something he leans upon. But do you guys know why it has the hook on the end? It's to pull sheep, to guide them, to push them and pull them, to to rescue them. And so that is what Yahweh is to David. He He is a corrector. He is the one who brings him back from the trails he went on that he ought not to. When he wandered away, God brought him back. When he needed to help himself stand, who was it that he leaned upon? So God, this is, this is what I love about our God. He, he is terrifying. He does come on some sort of flaming chariot thing made of angels, and I kind of don't want to see it because it sounds terrifying. But he is also a stick. A stick that I lean on. A stick that pulls me back when I go the wrong direction. In verse 20, it tells us that the Lord initiated the relationship. God's love, God's covenant word is efficacious. As we read in Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that, accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So God's word is like himself. Does God ever rouse himself from his throne, descend, go out to fight for us and fail? Does he ever go out and come back empty like, well, you know, guys, I gave it my best shot, but it didn't work out. And, and what we know is God's word is just like this. God's word, when he says, you are mine and I am yours, is, that, is there any way to undo the words of God's mouth? So when he says, this is life and this is blessing and this is death and this is cursing, is there anything that can stop his hand? Is there anything that can prevent his word, his definition of our reality from coming to be? There's no overcoming him, not in action and not in word. His word is like this. It goes out from the heavens and it does not come back to him empty. It comes back with the people that gathered to himself, as he, which is the purpose for which he sent the word out. Right? Does he fail to keep covenant with Abraham? Does he fail to keep covenant with Moses? Does he fail to keep covenant with David? Now, early on in chapter 7 of, of, of 2 Samuel, he said, you will not fall, your house will not fall like Saul's did. And, and no matter what David tried to do to get it to fall, he tried real hard, it still didn't. Why? We see it through the whole thing. What God's word was that your house won't. And David does this, and David does that, and he's untrustworthy, and, and, not, and if it depends upon him, it's over. But it doesn't depend upon him. It depends upon Yahweh. It depends upon the word of the Lord. And we see his word coming into fullness here. We've seen everything that David has done, all the things he didn't do, all the mayhem that he has caused. And what do we see? We see him trucking along. Why? Because God delights in him. Now, should he? That's not really our business. He does, and so David reigns. 
And the, and the end of this book is very different than the end of 1 Samuel, in, in which we saw what happened to Saul. Now, the biblical reality that God's word is not returned to him empty, this reality that he rouses himself from the heavens to descend to fight on our behalf, helps us understand the next words, which are actually very difficult. So we go on in verse 21 to 28. It says, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and have not, wicked, not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. Now you hear this and you think, man, David, again, pretty, your righteousness, huh? I've seen what you're, yeah, let's ask Bathsheba about your righteousness, buddy. What is he saying here? I, this, this section gives people, like the Psalms often do, a lot of trouble. David's language is problematic because it, he appears to be appealing to his own inherent righteousness. Others try to explain it away by reading into it words that aren't there. He doesn't say imputed righteousness. He doesn't say the righteousness that you gave me. He doesn't explicitly say that. He, what he is saying is, I am righteous. My works what I have done. You judge me according to those because I've been blameless according to the law. And, and you, right, this isn't, you can't read the Reformation understanding of justification into this because it's not what he's saying, right? David had no idea about the, the Reformation. He doesn't know who Martin Luther is, okay? I, I highly doubt they've even met now in heaven. So what was David talking about? How does David appeal to his own righteousness, Augustine explained this away by interpreting it typologically, saying that these are the, the words of Jesus, so don't worry about it. This is actually Jesus saying this, it's not David. Except David was a real person, and he really sat down with a scroll in his hand and a pen and actually wrote these words. Right? They were his words before, they were, right, before we came to understand them as being Jesus' words. And so what in the world is he talking about? Often the Psalms plead with God concerning a particular accusation. In Psalm 7, as was read for us today, David wrote, If I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, then may I be judged. And aren't we all a little, ter- well, okay, now God's going to smash David like a, like a pebble. He's going to squash him under his foot. Like, who wants to be judged by God? Anybody? Any, right? When, and, and we completely understand the problem. There's a problem. I don't want to stand and be judged by God. Are you kidding you know what I have a, I've done in my life? And, and, and the reason that we have so much trouble with this is because we don't understand that it's covenant language. There's that pesky covenant. No, he's not going to talk about covenant again. Yes, I am. Here I go. It's covenantal language. David's prayer <clears throat> assumes a relationship, right? This portion of, script, of what he has to say comes after a great deal that he's already said about the God that he serves. Right? God, God delighted in him, and so God came to him and made this covenant with him, and everything that proceeded after that, all the glory, all the descending of God to save him, all the being lifted out of the waters, is all predicated upon the fact that God moved first. And so when, when he's talking here, he is righteous. Why? Because God has made him so. He is sinless. Why? Because God has made him so. And How? Well, God gave us a covenant, and he said, listen, when you sin, what I want you to do is take this lamb, and I want you to slit its throat and cut it up and put it on this fire and burn it, and I will forgive you for your sins. Now, does that actually work? Yes, <laughs> that, it actually works. So when you get on your knees here on Sunday morning, and you are, and you are confessing your sins, and, and, you, and you say it all, and you say, this is, this is what I've done, and then the person up here reads the verdict that you are, in fact, blameless according to the law of God, covenantally, what's happened? You have put away all of your unrighteousness, and, and, and you're availing yourself of the, covenantal, the terms of the covenant, which where God provides to you so that you can be righteous. You are the righteous ones. And I think, 
I understand why we, we qualify, but I think that there is a problem over time when we qualify. Because we want to be very, well, I am righteous because of Christ. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. But I want, what I want for us to have the boldness to simply say, yeah, I am, I am perfectly righteous and blameless according to the law. Now, I'm going to t- <laughs> we are a CREC church. This has caused some problems. <laughs> I'm not the first CREC pastor to talk this way, but I'm also not the first Reformed guy to talk this way. If you go back and you read what some of the faithful have said in other ages, the boldness with which they have said it, and you know those men were not saying, come and judge, right, me, me. It's all, no, they have this whole relationship upon which the entire thing is predicated on. Because what they believed is that God would fulfill in them the very thing he promised to do. Now, God says to you, come to me and I will make you holy. Come to me and I will make you your clothes as white as wool. Come to me and give me your burdens and I will give you, what? Rest. When you come to him with your burdens... What kind of God would he be if he didn't take them from you and didn't give you rest? So is he the God who does what he says he's going to do or not? If he is, then what you should do if you are particip- if you're the, the covenant is functioning the way that it should, is you should be able to save yourself, I am righteous. I am holy. I am set apart. I am uh, in the household of God, which is the living God, therefore I am eternal. I am untouched by sin. And the only reason that you can be is because, because God made this covenant with you, and because he delights in you, he's fulfilling what he promised to do. And, and we have to stop being so particular about the qualifications. And this is one, one of the things I decided... You know, when I started preaching in 2000, whatever it was, 11, I don't even know now. There were a number of things that I just decided I was going to do. And one of them is, I am never going to come in here and talk to you guys as if you're anything but believers. Now, may some of you not be? Absolutely. But I'm not going to sit here and qualify, well, you know, for some of you who think you are, but you're not, and some of you that think you're not, but you are. And, and, and you read these preaching books, and, like... I'm not going to sit here and shake you all out like you're trying to get the chaff out through my words. There is a boldness problem. We do not come boldly before the throne of God. We do not come boldly before the face of God. We do not stand up boldly and say, we are the righteous ones. We are the children of God. We are his people. We are his bride. And what you see with David, what you see with other people who understand how the covenant works and what the covenant is doing to them, stand on that rock with that kind of confidence. And that is something that we all need more of, I believe. We need more assurance. And, and we don't need assurance in ourselves because there's none. What we need assurance of is the God who delights in us, who made a covenant with us, is going to fulfill the terms of the covenant. He's going to do it. He has done it. He will do it. And so why appeal to anything else? And why be meek and mild about it? Right? Meekness is often understood to be weakness. Now, meekness, right? this is one area where God told us not, come boldly before me. Come to me. Come and say, this is what, right? When you pray, God, I'm, I'm calling you. I'm reaching out to you because you told me to do it. And, and, and you think, what kind of boldness is that? Where you go before him and you're like, listen, you wanted to hear from me and this is what I have to say. And everybody's like, whoa, Mike. <laughs> But the Psalms ought to be the kinds of things we pray all the time. Uh, right? God is my rock. God is my salvation. I cried out because I was overcome. He saved me. I am a righteous one. I'm standing here being judged by, by that righteousness. What righteousness? Well, the whole thing is predicated on what God has done for him and to him. And I appeal to all of you to be this bold. You have to understand what covenant is for. The covenant that God has made is because you're not going to remain as you were when God made the covenant with you. When you were baptized, you started down a path that in, in the end is going to end, end up with a glorified creature. Pure and perfect people. Blameless people. Beautiful people. People who he has cleansed inside and out. 
And so who are you? That is who you are. Now, David suggests four virtues that please the Lord in regards to this, faithfulness, moral blamelessness, purity, and humility. And, and it sounds very much like Jesus' list from the Beatitudes. And, and, there's, and there's consistency here, right? This, this, this is what God expects of you. He's, he heard you. He saved you. He delights in you. So what does he expect? He expects you to be faithful to him and, and to live hum, in, in humility to walk according to his precepts, to obey him in all things. He's expecting you to do that. And when you do that, what happens to you? Well, the covenant is then fulfilled, and you are the righteous ones. Now, there's another thing here that's a little tricky, and, and this, might act, this, this is hard for me, I'll, be, I'll admit. But go down this path with me for, for just a minute. In verses 26 to 28, David um, says that the Lord does not treat all people alike. To do so, in fact, actually, if you think about it, would demonstrate a moral indifference on God's part. Is God morally indifferent? Or does is he act a certain way towards his people and in a different way towards unbelievers? Now, we have to be very careful here. Okay? But what, what David says is to the, to the crooked, God makes himself torturous. To the haughty, he exalts the, um, the haughty who exalt themselves at the expense of God and others, ultimately find what? That God tears them down. Now, I, I was thinking about this. To, to, the, to the tortured souls, God seems torturous. Right? And, and, and to, the, to certain people, God seems twisted. Now, if you think about that, that seems pretty outrageous. But think about it from the point of view of an unbeliever. Right? Think about a person who doesn't believe in him, doesn't honor him, who looks at what happens in, in this world and says, no, there's no God, he, right? He's, he's not benevolent. He, is, he tortures us. And if you go back and you look through history and mythology and false religions, what are they always, they're describing the gods, right? If you look at the, the Greeks, they're talking about God, he's, they're tricksters. Gods are always tricking us. The gods are always luring us in, and then, and then they're doing something terrible to us. Now, do unbeliever, unbelievers, is what I'm saying, what David is saying, experience God this way. To the tortured soul, God is torturing them. God is, God appears exactly what, how you think he is. So if you think he is unloving, he's, what, what, is, what is he going to appear? How is his actions in your life going to appear? If you think that he hates mankind, if you, if you hear something like the atonement, and you think substitutionary atonement, so God is the kind of God where he will murder his own son to save a bunch of people, that's wickedness. Now, if you think that, aren't you, are, is God going to appear to be wicked in the real world? Now, I'm listening to this book about conservationism, written by... <laughs> by a guy who does not believe in Jesus. But I've already had to listen to him explain Matthew 28 to me and my faulty view of Jesus. It's a funny book, but he, he talks about God um, being this kind of trickster God. But he doesn't say Yahweh. He doesn't say the triune God. He says Mother Nature. Mother Nature is vengeful. Mother Nature is retributive. Mother Nature is, is just, she is a real piece of work. Right? She's unpredictable, and, and she is vicious. And what is he describing? He's describing the actual God and how he finds him in the world because he is tw he's twisted, and so God appears twisted. He is broken, and so God appears broken. He is a tortured soul, and so God appears to be torturous. And, and I think this should cause us, right? This helps us understand exactly how it is we're supposed to approach people. Because, right, if you just start describing a benevolent God, the first thing somebody is going to do when you say that to an unbeliever, they're going to start talking about what? The problem of pain. The problem of evil. Why would a good God allow bad things? And, and, it, and it, the, the burden is upon us to try to explain that to people. Because acting like the problem of pain or the problem of evil isn't a problem is stupid. <laughs> Well, you just don't understand. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed is the name of the Lord. Now, for Christians, we're comforted by that. But how terrible does that sound to an unbeliever who doesn't know God, who, doesn't, who, who God doesn't build it in his heart? Now, David goes on to explain further that this how this covenant God manifests himself to everyone. He makes himself known to all peoples. So in verse 29, it says, For you are my lamp, O Lord. My God lightens my darkness. For by you I run against the troop. 
By my God, I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set them me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from the strife with my people and kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of the fortresses. Now, a lot of this is just repeating what's already been said. Who made him righteous? Who made him strong? Who trained him for war? Who made it possible for him to do the impossible, like jump over a wall and march against the troop? Who has made him this way? So all along, was he, was he claiming that he in himself was something special? No, and, and there are references here at the end. This, God manifests himself. He makes himself known. And, and, and what David experienced wasn't just victory. He would sometimes have victory over peoples who he never even fought. Some people saw him coming and walked out of the fortress and knelt down before him and said, okay, you're in charge. And this is a reference back to the conquest. Remember Rahab? Remember in the Gibeonites? There were some people who gave up to Israel because they had heard of, and you go back and you look at the text, they hadn't heard of Israel, they had heard of Yahweh. And they're like, oh no, oh no. It's those people whose God is Yahweh. Now, isn't that a far cry from how we do things now? Right? Our God is a joke to the nations. The people of God is a joke. Why? We're not, we're not to be feared. We're not ferocious. Because we have forgotten what the covenant was for. The covenant was to make us righteous. The covenant was to make us strong for warfare. And what you have are a bunch of unrighteous people, people who are not acting like covenant members, and, and people who are weak and feeble, and e- easily give way before the enemy. And, and David knows what the covenant was for. The, the covenant, God's said, God's faithfulness, God's love was given to him to turn him into something other than what he was. And it was so terrifying that not only did he have victory in battle, there were people who surrendered to him without even having to swing the sword at all. He is the anointed of the Lord. He is, right? David. Is, is David afraid to talk to God? Is, is David afraid to cry out to God? Is David afraid of his enemies? Is, is David afraid to do hard things? What you see here in David is what the Christian is supposed to be. Somebody who relies not on themselves at all, they rely so much so on Yahweh that they will jump over a castle wall. What's funny is those verses are originally where he, it used to be what, super, instead of Superman, you know how he, he can fly. And originally he was supposed to be somebody who didn't fly. He was just really strong. And way back when the, when the comic book started, they used these verses to describe what Superman was like. Right? This idea of David the Superman, because they were Jews who started, anyway, comic book history. I don't know how I got off on that. <laughs> what I want you to see is the David here. That was a long section. And what we heard was the fruit of God's love, the fruit of the promises, the fruit of the word of God. And what you have here is a man who knows when to fight and how to fight, and he, he is ferocious to his enemies, and, and he is, yet what? Humble. And gives all the glory to God. He looks to God to save him. Right? David isn't afraid of a fight, because if the fight gets away from him, who is going to save him? Now, how often have you been afraid to fight because you're uncertain of the outcome? Where you have David here, is like, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to jump over the wall, and then I'll be outnumbered. But that's fine, because when the seas overroll me, I cry out to God, and he delivers me. Right? And, and you see this kind of thing later on. Um, the, the guys who go in Daniel when he's thrown into the lion's den. 
And he's like, well, you know, we might be eaten by the lions, but we might not. We'll see what God wants to do, right? If God wants to save me, these lions aren't going to do anything to me. If God's done with me on this earth, then the lions will eat me. And, and there's a confidence and swagger. I, I'm not kidding, a swagger with these guys. Why? Because Yahweh loves them. Yahweh has made promises to them. And they believe so much in those promises that they will do unbelievable things and they, and they will serve him no matter what it costs them. They will obey him. And, and this is what the Lord wants to you. Like, this is what he wants from you. This is what he wants to do in and through you. This is why you have a covenant. This is why you are sitting here. This is why we are singing these songs. This is why you have a Bible. This is why you made marriage vows. This is why you're raising your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. This is why we do everything. Because God delights in us. God promised us. And he is not a failure. And what he wants are people who are going to go and live like he is who he says he is. Now, the final thing here, the, the, the final beautiful piece of this is, is the authors of this remember the Song of Moses. And, and, and in the end, they, there's all kinds of references here back to the Song of Moses. And so remember when I said, like, you have Hannah and, Samuel, or Hannah and David singing to each other? Well, you, you have even bigger brackets. You have Moses singing and David singing, and two men who were made great by who? Two men who became something because of whom? And they're singing towards one another. And, and because the things that Moses saw God doing and, and entering the promised land and conquering and overcoming the world and overcoming the Israelites and doing all these things, David is now echoing back to Moses in this song. Because God is not different. Right? It's not like David in, in Moses' generation was somehow God operated differently. God delights in us and so he makes a covenant with us and he will fulfill that covenant And so you should be as bold as David and Moses. You should feel as confident in his love for you and as confident in your own righteousness because he is who he says he is. And that's how he finishes this song. He says, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies, who exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Now, who are David's offspring? You. So Moses rose up, and he was great because of the Lord. David rose up, and he was great because of the Lord. And all of his descendants are supposed to share in that. And we know that it's possible, because how many years later did David's greater son arise, and it was the Lord Jesus himself who fulfilled all the promises and all the types and did all the things necessary for us to be made righteous, for us to be saved forever, for us to go out and not even fear death itself. This is your heritage. This is who you are. You have, there is an anointed one, and he is your king, he is your Lord, he is your savior, and his name is Jesus. And and, and what did he promise to do? He promised to justify you, didn't he? He promised to sanctify you. And is he doing it? Did he, and did he say, oh, you will one day, there on your deathbed, close your eyes, and you will not be in this world anymore, but don't be afraid because I have overcome death itself. And so this is our confidence. This is the rock that over time should not just be a little boulder that we're standing on. We need to understand these things and depend upon these things such that by the end of our lives, we feel as if we're standing upon a mountain. And from there, it's very much like the mountain we actually will be standing on, which is God's throne itself in the heavens. And so, what are the waves? This is the, when you, you hear a sermon like this, you pull apart the, the scriptures in this fashion, and then you go and you, and you look at your, how easily are we overcome? And, and there are, there are waves. And you, and, and you probably, this week, this month, felt like you were drowning. Drowning in the work. Drowning in the responsibilities. Drowning in the unbelief. Drowning in the struggles. And, and has God ever failed you? What would he do when you cry out to him? Right? You don't have to wait for the jets to scramble from Portland. He is present with you. 
He died on the cross to make a home with you. And so he's billeted in your hearts, and you now, because of him, can overcome everything. His promises are not going to fail. They never have. And that's why we go to the scriptures again and again and again to relearn this and relearn this and to become these people who are this confident. Right? Not in ourselves, but in the one who, for reasons unknown to us, delights in us, and so he came to us and made a covenant with us. And that love should not and will not leave us as it found us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you for David. We thank you for Moses. We thank you, Lord, um, for, this, uh, for the books of Samuel. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who came and revealed um, what the, the true depth and meaning of all of these people's lives and all of uh, the scriptures. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who fulfilled all your promises, who has made his home with us, who has made, who's laid claim to us. And I pray, God, that we would go from here and that we would cease to fear that we would cease um, to doubt, and that we would lay claim to Jesus just as he has laid claim to us, that we would lay claim to you and the Spirit just as you have laid claim to us, and that we would be bold, that we would be grateful, Lord, and that we would give all glory to you. David's response to your love in his life was to go and proclaim you, was to fulfill the Great Commission naturally out of his love for you. And I pray that it would be so with us, that we would be people who proclaim in song your goodness and greatness with those great, mem- uh, great faithful throughout time. And amen.